Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as your people. And we've come to you to worship, to proclaim your praise, to recognize your honor and glory, to give you what you've asked us to bring to you, which is our loyalty and our commitment to following you and following your Son. We ask that the words that have been spoken to us from you through the various authors who have written the Old New Testament, we ask that they would speak to us today, that these words would challenge us and transform us, and that we could respond to them in faith in the way that you're calling us to respond. And we ask this all in your Son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I'm a big loyalty kind of person. Some of you maybe are that way, and some of you might not be that way. But I look for brands and different, you know, whatever it could be, sports teams, uh, different things. But I look for brands specifically that I want to support, and then I tend to want to gravitate towards continuing to support those brands. Or whenever we moved back from Colorado, I was determined to find uh, someone who could cut my hair, and that would be the person I'd always go to. And I'd want to support someone that I knew and always have that person that I could then uh, schedule a hair appointment with. That's just the kind of personality that I have. Now, a big example of this is when the Colts decided to let Peyton Manning walk away after the 2011, team, 2011 season to sign with the Denver Broncos. Now, that was a big deal for a lot of Colts fans. I mean, if you're a Colts fan, you probably have an opinion about that. A lot of people were really angry with the Colts because they thought that they were just letting Peyton Manning out to dry after all the years that he had faithfully served us and played for our team. So a lot of people were unhappy. And I even know people, because there's some people in my family, who let their loyalty stay with Peyton Manning and they followed him to the Denver Broncos. And there was one Christmas where I was asked to buy, and I was paid back for this because they're expensive. I was asked to buy a, um, a Peyton Manning Denver Broncos jersey when we lived in Colorado, and bring it home for a person for a Christmas gift. Because this was what happens whenever your loyalty is with a player who is now retired instead of with a team. Now, I know that's a very opinion, or that's something that people can have lots of opinions about, and, and I'm mostly joking about the specifics of, you know, do we have loyalty to players or to teams? But for me, it was about the Colts. I'm going to be strong with the Colts, and I'm going to trust their, uh, the leadership of the organization. And that's kind of what goes with being a fan. You have to be a fan whenever it's going well and when it's not going well. You don't want to be what people call a bandwagon or a, a good weather fan. And I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan also, so we've had lots and lots of years of bad weather with the Reds. And this year, maybe we're going to have some luck, but the season's short. But I am a loyalty kind of person. So I want to be loyal to whatever it is I've decided that I want to find important. 
Now we have another word in our culture for the word for the idea of loyalty. And that word is allegiance. Now, Revelation, the book that we've started studying last week, believe it or not, Revelation is about allegiance. And now the specific question that actually Revelation wants us to ask as we study it is where does your allegiance truly lie? That's the question being asked of us when we read this book. Now for the seven churches to whom John is writing, the answer should have been pretty simple to them. As followers of Jesus, their allegiance should lie with Jesus. Or put differently, Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. Now this is what the Christian and early followers of Jesus called people to. And it seems pretty simple, right? Give Jesus your allegiance. But in the first century, just like today, it's not always as easy to do this as we would seem. So this is what the book of Revelation is really about. Where is your allegiance? Where are you giving your loyalty? Because Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. So if you want to open up to Revelation, now we're we're not going to, we're doing chapters 2 and 3, and we're not going to read all of these. are not going to read every word of every, both these chapters. You might have, if you were here last week, I said uh, read two, chapter 2 and 3, so hopefully you did that. If not, it's not too late for you to do it in the, uh, the, this upcoming week. But if you want to take out, if you have your Bible with you, or smartphone, or it'll be on the screen, the verses we are going to look at. We're going to be looking at Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 2, and we will start with around verse 1. We will have verse 1 in there, so if you're ready to go, you'll have uh, that in position. But before we look at chapter 2 and 3, we need to have some clear idea of what's going on in the first century. So these Christians in the first century did not live in a vacuum. And when we say that Jesus alone deserves our allegiance, now that was something in the first century that had been highly controversial. Just like it's actually highly controversial today, if we think about what that means. But in the first century, there was something called the imperial cult. Now, this is not alone a thing that the Roman Empire did. If you Google it, there's a nice little Wikipedia article about lots of ancient um, kingdoms who use this idea. But now the word cult, when we think of that, we think about you know, different extreme cults where people went and lived places and they were asked to do things. But the word cult... Before it had that meaning, it simply meant uh, like a practice of worship. So imperial worship is the idea. Now this was something that was used in the first century, and it was a complex cultural system. And what it really was, was the glue that held the Roman Empire together. It was a mix of civil holidays, patriotic duties, and cultural convictions that basically cultivated loyalty to Rome and the emperor. Okay, so think about what that is, all right? Civic holidays, cultural ide ideologies, patriotic duties that bring a society together. That's what the imperial cult was. And it eventually, by the time of the first century, when this book's being written in Revelation, in Asia Minor specifically, 
the region where these churches are at, not only was the imperial cult popular, but it was becoming more and more popular for the imperial cult to include emperor worship. Now, what that means is that some of these churches that, that John is writing to had temples in their cities to the current Roman emperor. And you could go to that temple and you could offer sacrifices and you could worship that emperor. So this would be like in today that we go to, you know, downtown Decatur over here, we go to Bluffton, and there's a little church for the president. And we go there and we worship the president. That is what it was. All right? And the reason that this was happening, for one, it was a way for the emperor to gain loyalty and for people to be committed to following the emperor. So think about it, the Roman Empire is made up of lots and lots of small tribes and people groups that were conquered. And those people don't always want to become part of the country that conquered them. So how is it that you begin to take these small people groups and make them part of the larger one? Well, you have to give them something that binds them together and gives them something to be, to have in common and to connect over. And that's what the imperial cult was. It was basically propaganda for people to support Rome and to find commonality between one another. They could gather around this emperor worship as a way to share in their citizenship as members of the Roman Empire. So this was going, all over, going on all over Asia Minor, and it became popular to happen all over the Roman Empire as season progressed. And it became to the point where emperors considered themselves gods while they were alive. Now, Julius Caesar, the very first Roman emperor, was named a god after his death by his son, who we know as Caesar Augustus, or he first was known as Octavian. And then the same for Octavian, he was named a god after his death. But within a couple decades, the emperor started to say that they were gods while they were still alive. And then they asked for people to worship them. So if you were a first century Christian, you were forced to face this reality. Do you give your allegiance to Caesar, your king, or do you give, or the king of the country you live in, or do you give your allegiance to Jesus, who you believe to be the true king of the world? Because Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. This was the situation that the first century Christians found themselves in. And because of this, they were forced to make decisions about how they're going to live their lives and what they're going to do in their cities, how they're going to participate in civic situations, how they're going to participate even within their own trade guilds. Because in the first century, if you were a blacksmith, you were a part of the blacksmith community in your city. And the blacksmiths had gods. In addition to emperor worship, and the gods of your local city. And you all of a sudden had to make, ask the question, am I going to be loyal to Jesus, or am I going to be loyal to Rome and the emperor, and then participate in all of these other civic things that go with it? That was the question for first century Christians. And we see this all over these first letters. So we're going to first look at the very first. So what uh, chapters 2 and 3 are is seven individual letters to the seven churches that this entire book was sent to. So each church has a little snidbit written directly to them. And it's presented as from the words of Jesus himself to 
these churches. So this is what it says. So first, we'll start with the first one. And this is to Ephesus. Gavin. All right. So these are the words of him. Now look at the bold part here. Him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. All right, so that's a reference to the, fir- the previous chapter. There's this long section of description about Jesus that has all of these weird, strange images. You can go to the next one. And then we have this. This is to um, Smyrna. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and who came to life again. Now the next one is to Pergamum. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now that's a reference to what it said is coming out of his mouth. This next one is to Thyatira. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like the blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Next one is Sardis. Now we're into chapter 3. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The next one is to Philadelphia. These are the words of him who is the holy, who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And then finally, the Laodicea. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. All of these lines are making one clear statement. They're referencing that vision from chapter 1, which is a vision full of imagery from the Old Testament, all around the idea that the Son of Man who is coming will be God, and God's appointed ruler over the earth, and this ruler is the only person worthy of worship and loyalty, allegiance, and the only person worth following. And these seven letters... What these are is little stabs at the emperor to say, hey, you know what? You've heard all over that you need to be loyal to the emperor. He is your king. Don't forget who the real king is, Jesus. Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. So when we look at Revelation, what we need to understand is it is often an alternative to the imperial cult. This is so important. This is so important. And this is what we, if you just read this book and you have no idea about the empirical, we don't even get it. But if you were a first century Christian living in one of these Asian minor cities, this is the only thing you see in this book. You see John saying, hey, I know you're being asked to worship worship the emperor and to be a part of this is your civic duty as a citizen. But you need to realize that this is what's actually going on. Remember, behind the scenes, this is what's really going on. Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. So I'm going to offer you a criticism. And you're going to have to make a choice. Are you going to, be allegiant, are you going to give your allegiance and your loyalty to Jesus or to Caesar? And Revelation is about this choice. Now it might not seem like this is a choice we have to make as 21st century Americans. But the question we need to ask ourselves And this is controversial. Do we have a civil religion in America that asks us to participate in and asks us to give our allegiance to that religion? That is the question that we need to ask. Because that's where Revelation pushes in 
to our 21st century reality. As Christians, we are asked to do one thing, to give allegiance to Jesus. And just because we live in 21st century America doesn't mean that our culture doesn't have something similar to emperor worship. Now, I'm not saying that anyone's out there asking you to worship anyone in our government or something. Not in the way that we think of worship like what we're doing today. But if the heart of worship is where do you give your allegiance and your loyalty, what do you devote your life to, then we might begin to see how we have to ask hard questions about what our culture is asking us to participate in. Now for John, he sees there's three possible positions for these churches to be in as they look at their allegiance. Now the first two churches fall, or two churches fall in this first category, and this is Smyrna and Philadelphia. So this is what Jesus says to these two churches when he addresses them specifically. All right, Gavin, we're going to go ahead with the next one. Uh, So to Smyrna, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And then he continues in verse 10, he says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. So if we were to read all of these verses to Smyrna, Jesus says, hey, look, I know that you're living in poverty and you're being oppressed because you're remaining faithful to me. Now, why are they being oppressed and why are they in poverty? Because they're not participating in the imperial cult. If you don't participate, you're not a good citizen. People don't want to do business with you. Your family and friends don't want to associate with you because you might be viewed as a traitor to the Roman emperor. You might not be able to keep your job anymore because you don't participate in the worship of the local gods that are a part of your trade. All of a sudden, you become marginalized. And he says, Smyrna, you have been doing it right. And he says, don't worry. At the end, you will be given life's victor. Or you will be given victory. And you will be given this crown. Now to Philadelphia, he says, we can go to the next one, Gavin. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So to Philadelphia, he says, I recognize also, if we were to read all of it, that you're facing oppression. But he says, don't worry, remain faithful. I'm going to take care of you. Even though there's this time of judgment coming, now we'll talk about that in the coming weeks as we look at the rest of the vision. But for both of these churches, they are in this first category of having full allegiance. There's nothing to criticize. And because of that, Jesus says, you will be rewarded with life and I will be faithful and guard over you. Our allegiance, or Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. Now those were the first two churches. Now there's three more in this next category. The first one is Ephesus. Now this is what Jesus says to Ephesus. He says, he says, I know your deeds. This is chapter 2, verse 2. Your hard work and your perseverance. He says, yet I hold this against you. 
You have forsaken the love you had at first. So for Ephesus, he says, I know that you've been faithful and you've persevered. He says, but you've forsaken the love you once had. Now, that is a way of saying your allegiance is waning and you're beginning to compromise. And he says this to Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 13. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to, the, to my name. Now, that's probably a reference to this city actually having the very first um, Roman or the emperor temple. That's what it means by Satan has his throne. Now, that'll be important as we read the rest of the book of Revelation. Because what John actually does is he takes this idea of Satan, the adversary of God, and then he links that person to the Roman emperor himself. And then Rome takes on the persona of the kingdom that brings about the reign of Satan in the world. And he says, nevertheless, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So again, we see that even though they've been faithful and there's something to commend, there's some situations in Pergamum that are not what they should be. And then to Thyatira, this is what he says. This is also chapter 2, actually maybe 319. No, it's 219. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. A compliment. But then, nevertheless, I have this against you. So we see that word again, that same phrase. And then he goes on to list what he has against them. Now, if we were to look at detail, all three of these local cities, Jesus is saying, I recognize your commitment and your allegiance to me. He said, you've been strong in your faith, but... For Ephesus, they've forsaken their first love. For Pergamum, if we were to continue reading, we would learn that they had begun to hold to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And for Thyatira, they're beginning to tolerate Jezebel. Now, these are all images from the Old Testament. But the idea is that they are beginning to allow idolatry to come into their midst. They're beginning to allow people to teach them to compromise and participate in the imperial cult because it will give them an opportunity to remain faithful to their city and their family and to receive the benefits of remaining faithful while also worshiping Jesus. And he says, you begin to compromise your allegiance and you will eventually slide so for all of them, there's a call to return to their original commitment. Because Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. So this is the second group of churches in this letter. They need to hear the words of Revelation and see what's actually going on behind the scenes and be like, okay, I need to return my allegiance to Jesus. Because being allegiance, having my allegiance given to Rome is actually me following Satan. And we'll see how that ends. Because Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. So those are the, the three churches in this middle category. Now there's also two more churches in a final category. With 3-1, this is what Jesus says to Sardis. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation 
for being alive, all right? Look, so what that means, people think that you're a very strong church with strong faith, but this is what I have seen. But you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. So even though Sardis appears to be faithful, they're actually dead inside. And then this is what he says to Laodicea. 3.15, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now this is a reference to the water in Laodicea. Laodicea did not have a natural spring, but there was a city nearby that had nice natural cold water coming out of the mountains, and then a different city nearby that had nice natural hot springs. So one city, the water was cool and refreshing to drink. The other city, the water was warm, and it was therapeutic. But Laodicea had to have their water brought in uh, with a, what is the word? Whenever they have water, an aqueduct. They'd have their water brought in by an aqueduct because they didn't have a natural spring close by. So by the time the water came, it came from the place where the water was cool. But after traveling all, that, all those miles, it had warmed up and was not that great to drink. So this was the reputation of the water of Laodicea. It was worthless. It wasn't great for refreshment or for comfort. And you just didn't want it. Jesus says, just like your water, you are neither hot nor cold. I don't want you anymore. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth unless you return to me. So both of these two churches, it seems that they have completely compromised and begin to participate in the imperial cult. And Jesus says, even though you used to be faithful, you are now walking away. And he says, if you don't turn back Quickly, you will be lost. Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. Now, how do we know this is what's happening? We'll take a look at what he says to Laodicea in 17 and 18. He says, you say, I am rich. This is what they're saying. He's quoting them as a way of saying, this is what I hear about you. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. What that's saying is, look, you participated in the imperial cult and it's made you very wealthy. Laodicea was a wealthy, wealthy city. You participated in the imperial cult and it's got you a lot of wealth. But this is what he says. But what we do not realize is that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked because of your participation. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. What he's actually saying is, don't invest in the imperial cult. Because what it does is it actually makes you a horrible person. Or it doesn't make you a horrible person, but you're committed to these types of things. Instead, he says, invest in the kingdom of God. And white clothes will be given to you to wear. So you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Only in the kingdom of God is there true wealth? Are you actually cleansed in the robes offered by Jesus and your body is healed by the healing power of the gospel through living 
in the kingdom of God. This was the call to these churches. Stop participating in the imperial cults. Stop participating in the trade guilds that ask you to worship other gods just so you can become wealthy. Because you're actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Instead, he says, invest in my kingdom where you will find life. Now, it all comes down to allegiance. Now, these two churches have compromised. They've given their loyalty to Caesar and to Rome. And as we read Revelation, remember, it's a look behind the scenes. And what we're actually seeing is that Rome gets another name in Revelation. It gets the name Babylon. Babylon is the ultimate image of human rebellion in the Bible. It's the ultimate image of humans rebelling against the word of God and choosing to live their own way. And when you live in Babylon, you might get rich, but you're actually dead inside. When you commit to following and living the way of Babylon, you're actually worshiping Satan. And you're actually an adversary to God. And what it comes down to is Babylon represents every empire that has ever existed on earth. We can look at any empire and we can see the traits of Babylon. The exploitation of human life, the exploitation of wealth, the use of power to maintain wealth, the use of force and war to maintain power. That's the way of Babylon. And when we read Revelation, and we're called to give Jesus alone our allegiance, because Jesus alone deserves our allegiance, we see that the one person who has actually defeated Babylon is the one person who laid down his sword, laid down his life, and allowed Babylon, the Roman Empire, murder him. And then he was resurrected to defeat death so that we might have life. Now that is the message of Revelation that we'll begin to see. And for these churches, they're being called to give Jesus their allegiance because Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. So looking behind the scenes, we're going to see that Revelation is a battle for our allegiance, for our loyalty. Now for those first century Asia Minor Christians, it was about Caesar. But for us, we need to ask the question, well, what is our Caesar? Now, we're going to just let that sit for a while. I encourage you to think about that. Who is Caesar? Is there empires in our world? But what we really need to remember is that Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. So this week, take a look at your life. Think about those three churches. Think about our church community. You know, where do we fall in those categories? Are we faithful? Are we somewhere in the middle? Are we falling away? It doesn't have to be cut and dry. It's more, let's have some self-assessment. Self-assessment. To take a look at what's going on in our hearts. So we can be honest with ourselves about what we need to do as we read this book. Now next week we'll come back and we're going to look at chapter 4 and potentially chapter 5. So if you want to look at both those chapters, 
Next week we begin the visions. And we begin to see behind the scenes what's going on in this world between good and evil, between Satan and or the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. Babylon. But the call is always that Jesus alone deserves our allegiance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as your people. And we're looking at this book that calls us to worship you and to worship you alone. And to follow your son alone. And to give him our allegiance. Another way that we talk about that Jesus is by following the way of Jesus. Being committed to following you. And may you help us see that when we follow you, we can't also follow the ways of the world, or as Revelation puts it, as the way of Babylon, as the way of the kingdoms of the Satan, as the kingdom of the dragon and the two beasts, that ask us to give them our true allegiance and pull us away from following you and being a part of your kingdom and being members of your people. So may we continue to strive to follow you, Jesus. May you empower the spirit, your spirit that lives in us to transform us in ways that we're not able to live on our own so that we can give you our full loyalty and allegiance. And help me that, Father, we ask this all in your Son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.